Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 152 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the current state of post-apocalyptic fiction and reviewing the new George Miller film Mad Max Fury Road. And this will potentially involve spoilers for all four Mad Max movies, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got our producer, John Joseph Adams. He's the editor of Lightspeed and Nightmare Magazines, and also the series editor of Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy. He's also edited many other anthologies, including the recent books Wastelands 2, Operation Arcana, and Help Fund My Robot Army. So John, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Then next up, we've got Hugh Howey, who you may remember from our feature interview back in episode 83. His self-published post-apocalyptic novel, Wool, became a runaway bestseller on Amazon.com, and he also sold the film rights to Ridley Scott, director of Blade Runner and Alien. Together with John, he co-edited the apocalypse triptych of post-apocalyptic anthologies, The End is Nigh, The End is Now, and The End Has Come. So Hugh, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, David. Thanks for having me back, man. Yeah, yeah. And then also joining us today is Carrie Vaughn, who you may remember from our feature interview back in Episode 9, and our panel on Big Hero 6 vs. Interstellar in Episode 127. She's the author of the New York Times bestselling Kitty Norville series, about a werewolf who hosts a radio call-in show for supernatural creatures. The final book in the series, Kitty Saves the World, will be out in August. You can also read her new short story, Bannerless, in John and Hugh's anthology, The End Has Come. So, Carrie, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. All right, so let's start out and talk a bit about this new Mad Max movie, Fury Road. So, John, let's start off with you and just tell us a bit about how big of a Mad Max fan are you and what sort of expectations did you have going into this movie? Yeah, so uh, I, you, you might expect that I would be a huge Mad Max fan being a big post-apocalyptic guy, but I, I actually don't really have any particular affinity for those movies. Um, like, I appreciate what they contributed to sort of the post-apocalyptic canon, but I don't really enjoy them as movies per se, except like in sort of parts here and there like you know oh that was a cool scene that was a cool scene but um yeah i don't know there's something about them that i just don't really i never really dug um and uh so i had very low expectations when i heard i mean when i heard about the movie i was like eh who cares you know um and i wasn't even really planning to see it until you had suggested we talk about it on this panel and so i was like all right i mean i guess i could get up some enthusiasm to see it. Um, and, but that was before I saw all the pre-review or the, so the early reviews coming in and like everyone was like losing their mind over <laughs> this movie. Like uh, Charlie Jane Anders at io9 called it an astonishing work of art. <laughs> you know, not what I expected <laughs> uh, when I saw uh, when I was looking for reviews for this movie. Um, so, yeah, I just, uh, you know, I went in with very, you know, basically no expectations. And uh Yeah. And, and although I will say once I saw the the most recent trailer, uh, that sort of started getting me very excited about it. Because like the, the first trailer like, looked like it was an action movie and it looked fine. But then like the, the most recent trailer, the one that uh, focuses on Furiosa, um, it's called the number two trailer or whatever. Like if you Google it and you look it on you look it up on YouTube, um, that trailer is like amazing. And uh, that's the one where it's like it, it really plays up the lovely, lovely day thing, <laughs> which uh, which I thought was funny. But um, but yeah. So anyway, that's what that's how I approached the movie. Okay. So how about Carrie? Same question. Oh gosh, um, this is going to sound weird to a lot of people, but I really loved Beyond Thunderdome um, <laughs> when it came out, and I, I know that makes me unique among Mad Max fans. Um, but part of that was is I I was the same age as the kids in the Oasis um, when Beyond Thunderdome came out. And I really identified with them in a very strange way. Um, you know, being a child of the Cold War and kind of growing up through the whole um, fear of the nuclear apocalypse, the Mad Max movies are so iconic about that. And Beyond Thunderdome is the one I really latched onto. It's the one I've seen the most. It's the one I really think about when I think of Mad Max. I've seen Road Warrior, um, and, and it's a fine movie as well. I'm trying to remember when the last time I saw the first Mad Max movie, and I'm... I'm having trouble even even remembering it. And I think that one is so disturbing in so many ways. It's not one that I go back to. But the other ones are great. So I'm one of those people who's really looking forward uh, to Fury Road. And I loved it so much. Yeah. I can't even tell you. 
Um, I could just sit here and ramble on about it for an entire hour myself, um, because I think it wasn't just a great Mad Max movie. It was a great movie. And strangely enough, even though um, movies, you know, post-apocalyptic, especially post kind of nuclear apocalyptic movies, um, seem kind of dated as a concept. It's a very 80s thing. So why are we still telling those stories? Um, but in some ways, this was a really kind of timely um, and relevant movie. So I, I'm super excited about it. And I'm super excited to talk about it. Yeah, and we definitely want to get into all that stuff. But before we do, Hugh, just tell us about, a bit about your background with the Mad Max movies. The first of the films I saw was um, uh, Road Warrior. So that was uh, when I saw that as a kid. I didn't even know there was a Mad Max movie, uh, the one filmed in Australia. Uh, with the the you know so interesting that they had, like dubbed the American uh, voices on it because they were worried people wouldn't understand the uh, Australian actors. Um, but uh, so I did. I saw uh, Road Warrior, and then I saw Beyond Thunderdome, and then I went and saw Mad Max afterwards, and. To me, the original movie was kind of a letdown after seeing the other two. Um, it was just a little, um, I guess, too campy and too out there. Um, and I, like Carrie, I loved Beyond Thunderdome. I loved the characters. Hmm. Uh, I'll never forget, you know, the giant with the uh, the the midget on his um, shoulders. Um, you know that that Master Blaster. Uh, Master Blaster. Um, I I thought he was just one of the. Uh, wildest, most imaginative characters when I was a kid, and I couldn't get him out of my head. Um, so I went into this movie, uh, went into Fury Road, really with my expectations high. Um, I didn't like the first preview. I thought it was a little too over the top. And then um, I, I heard that the the initial reviews were great. And when I sat in the theater, literally, like, my mind melted. Um, <laughs> I came out of that theater and tweeted that I, I, and I still think this, I think it might be the best action movie ever made. Um, there's just not a wasted frame. The character development is perfect. Um, there's a lot of unexpected twists with some of the characters um, that, you know, didn't stick on the rails like like could have in a lot of action movies. Um, I, I'm, I'm dying right here now to, to sit and see it mm -hmm. again. Um, and it's one of those that I'll, I'll have to see a couple more times on the big screen because I, I don't think it'll, uh, have the same impact um, uh, on home video. Right. I want to expand a little bit, Hugh, on what you said about uh, The Road Warrior, because my understanding is that I don't think pretty much anyone in America saw the original Mad Max. Uh, I think it got a really limited release to such an extent that when they released Mad Max 2, it was actually called Mad Max 2, but they renamed it in America The Road Warrior because they didn't want people to know that it was a sequel to something that they had mm -hmm. never seen before. And uh, I think it's kind of funny. The original Mad Max movie, uh, I think it was written basically just as a as an action movie. And then they realized that they just couldn't afford to shoot it as a contemporary movie because they couldn't afford extras and, you know, backgrounds and stuff. And they're like, oh, if we make it post-apocalyptic, then, you know, hmm. we don't have to hire extras, basically. So Fascinating. It, <laughs> so it is, it's really, you know, as a post-apocalyptic story, it's, it's sort of lacking something. I think Road Warrior is, you know, they, they actually had a budget to actually do it in a more interesting way. And uh, and they just took that to an incredible extreme with this new movie, Fury Road. Um, let's, so, John, why don't you say a bit more about Fury Road? Just what are some of the things that you really liked about it? Yeah, so, you know, um, I did definitely love it. Uh, I, uh, you know, I went to go see it with my wife. And then uh, the next day, you know, uh, we, when she got up, I was like, uh, can we go see it again? <laughs> you know, um, and, and I mean, and I didn't get, I didn't actually get to go see it twice yet, but, um, but I definitely do want to see it again. And I, I like this so much. Like I'm actually going out of town this weekend and I'm going up to San Francisco. And so I was, I'm, I was like actually plotting like, well, where can I see it on the way back? Uh, where it's going to be like a really good theater. Cause you know, I mean, I saw it in like in a decent theater, but, um, but you know, I don't have any, like, any IMAX screens or anything nearby. And I was, I was just trying to find like, well, on the way between here and San Francisco, is there any like really awesome theater that I can stop at and see it? But yeah, I mean, it's uh, like he was saying, I mean, it's just like wall to wall action and it's incredible how much, um, how much story and character development that they actually get across when the movie is essentially a two hour long action sequence. And it's like, I don't even understand how they were able to do that. Um, and there's so little dialogue. It's, and it's so, it's amazing how much story is communicated just visually and, and through the actors, like, so sort of emoting and stuff. It's like, it, it's kind of great. I mean, just as a, as a film, like, 
it does so many things I don't think I've ever seen before, just in terms of, like, the amazing action spectacle. And like he was saying, uh, also, it's like, you know, it does seem a little bit over... I mean, there's certainly uh, the trailer, uh, the initial trailer seemed over the top, and the movie overall is pretty over the top. But it somehow really, really works and in a way that kind of surprises me that I liked it as much as I did, because like, a lot of movies like that I don't like um, when, when things go that far over the top. Um, but... Like, I don't know. All of it just works well in the context of this world that's presented there on the screen. And I mean, even the crazy like guitar player, uh, like strapped on bungee cords to this giant wall of speakers on a truck with his flaming guitar. It's like it somehow works. I don't know. It doesn't make any sense to me that it does, but it does. Yeah, if I can interject there, John. Um, so I heard all the, the advanced praise and all the reviews that, you know, 98 percent rating on Rotten Tomatoes mm-hmm. or something like that. And everybody universally was talking about the over the top action, that this was mm-hmm. the greatest action movie, action, action, action. Mm-hmm. The stunts are great. The, you know, the action is great. I came out of the movie wondering why nobody had talked about the story mm-hmm. um, because I think it's an amazing story and it's a very tightly plotted story with at least three distinct character arcs that are, that are primary to the story. And then a lot of other little character arcs, you know, kind of flowing underneath that. I, propose that the reason the action is so great is because of the very tightly plotted story mm-hmm. so that as Hugh was saying you know there's not a wasted scene there's not um you know random monsters don't come out of nowhere to attack for no reason everything that happens is in service to the story and if you'd had that action without the story the action would not have seemed as good as mm-hmm. it does I think the themes are, are so um, deep and poignant as well. Um, uh, there's been a lot of noise about the uh, the, the theme of uh, woman power and, and the real strong um, feminist message in here, which the fact that people are surprised about that is bizarre to me, considering there's been strong female characters in, in several of these films. Yeah. But um, the thing that I really, really loved about this film was uh, the idea of not dreaming for a heaven um, that might not exist, but making the place um, here and now happen. And there's one great line in the movie um, where one character says to another, if you can't fix what's broken, there is no uh, hope. Mm-hmm. And and so the idea, and I, I know we're going to have spoilers throughout this, so hopefully people have seen this movie, but the idea of like having to run off to find a green place rather than making it where you are, that you know people are spraying chrome on their faces and and hoping they die and go to Valhalla, um, it, it makes those people look foolish. And there's a lot of people living today who just think, I'm going to mm-hmm. follow these rules, and I'm going to go to some better place, you know, in the end times, when, you know, let's make this the better place. And I thought that was a really cool theme throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I'll say that I thought, I, I just want to put in for the record that I loved every minute of this movie, just in case anyone was uh, <laughs> was wondering about that. Uh, and my concern going into it was that it was going to be all CGI. I thought the trailer looked yeah. cool, but I was afraid it was going to be all CGI. And apparently there was almost, there was very little CGI in this movie. It was apparently 90% practical effects. And apparently they had Cirque du Soleil performers and Olympic athletes and all the stunts they really did with those big poles and everything. It's just, <laughs> it's just really, really amazing. You know, that's one of the great things that I think this movie might do for other movies in that not just not just that it will sort of redefine what an action movie can accomplish but maybe it'll you know encourage people to like hey practical effects actually can look amazing when you do them right and they can look way better than cgi because they look real you know and i think that would be a great trend to start right right but then john the other thing that going into this movie before any of the before there was any advanced buzz or anything i just noticed i don't know how common all over new york they have these posters for the movie and i don't know how common this image is but it's um charlie's their own and then um tom hardy's kind of in the background with a mask over his face and it really makes it look like she's the main character yeah and, yeah. and that sort of really struck me and i i said I, I i remarked on that to my girlfriend and she said oh well, maybe for the marketing they're trying to you know appeal to women and get them into the theater because the men are all going to go see it anyway mm-hmm. um but so that was my first maybe inkling that there would that there was going to be this sort of <laughs> what, what what turned into a, a, a large amount of discussion around the the women characters in this movie um but yeah do, do people want to say anything more about that about the marketing or you know about the women characters in the movie and how yeah and, and what the response to that has been I, I could talk about that forever, but um, <laughs> it, 
I, I, I didn't notice the poster. I didn't notice that there was anything weird about the poster with, with Charlize Theron's character being in front, although the MRA people apparently made a big deal about it. Um, I didn't think it was a big deal because Beyond Thunderdome had Auntie Entity and Savannah in it, who were both very strong women characters. Um, you know, Road Warrior had had prominent women characters, so this isn't like it's a new thing for Mad Max. The the thing that Fury Road does, and you know, there, there's all the really obvious stuff about you know sexual sh- slavery and, and the escape from that. Um, there's some really great interviews out with um, George Miller about um, how that grew out of the story that he wanted to have the story about you know these slaves, the, these breeders escaping from um, the main villain. And how he realized he couldn't have a man doing the rescuing. It had to be a woman doing the rescuing. Because if it was a man, it would just screw up the whole dynamic and kind of undermine um, that that part of the story. And and so that was all really obvious. But the thing that made the movie really stand out and made it something special for me is is the uh, the motorcycle gang, the Vuvolini. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we mm-hmm. see the motorcycle gang. You know, <laughs> Let me back up a little bit. So they, they, they're in the middle of the, this dry, blasted wasteland. They stop. They see the tower with the naked woman on it who is screaming and terrified. And Max says, that's bait. And I just laughed and laughed and laughed because that was exactly what I was thinking. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, yes, there's something going on here. And this is going to be fantastic. So, yes, she's bait. And the gang comes over the hill and they take off their mask and they take off their scarves. And it's a bunch of grandmas. But it's not just grandmas. It's, you know, there's these... these mature women, women of a certain age, I think some people call them, and they're survivors and they're fighters and they're mothers and they're nurturers. And it's totally taken for granted. Um, There's no explanation for it. They're just there. They're part Mm -hmm. of this landscape. They're part of the story. And I have never seen anything like that in a movie ever. Um, You know, I I think about all that. There have been plenty of chick flicks about multi-generational women um, doing things and working together, you know, things like steel magnolias and fried green tomatoes and stuff, but they're chick flicks. To see that dynamic or something like that dynamic happening in a movie like Mad Max um, was so revolutionary and so brilliant um, that I I have no words. I have no words for, you know, speaking as a woman um, in her 40s, how massively powerful that was. And then to have the entire third half of the movie that's these women working together and, and teaching each other and fighting for each other in a totally straightforward way. Um, it was perfect. It was just perfect. Hmm. I, I saw someone point out also that uh, there was actually like, I don't know, 12 women on screen at once at, at some point and seven of them were having a conversation uh, about something other than a man. So it's like they uh, so it like it, it just like took the Bechdel test and just like, you know, smash it to pieces, basically. Yeah, the, the entire <laughs> third act was. In fact, I think in the entire third act, if you tried to do a reverse Bechdel test, like, do, are were there actually men talking together about anything yeah, yeah. during the third act? I'm not sure there are. So, right, right. So hooray. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I thought one of the, the most um, moving uh, images in the whole movie were, was when the um, one of the older ladies and the younger ladies were facing each other. And what it, it really captured that on the left, you had the younger lady and, and on the right, you had the older lady. And it really captured the cyclical nature of generations. Like you saw the past um, in, in one half of the image and you saw the inevitable future in the other half. And um, more than just character development, you saw like this generational development. And probably the, the biggest character arc besides the, uh, the um, war boy who makes a complete turnaround mm-hmm. were the, the, the women themselves who went from – needing to be rescued to coming back and rescuing everyone else. Like what a quick turnaround just in a few days, they went from um, kind of, you know, fumbling um, for their, their footing to wielding um, weapons and putting up a fight against people who were like ultimate masculinity and bred for war and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and kicking butt and pulling it off in a believable way. There's never a, an easy out or like deus ex machina, kind of cheat in the entire plot, which is startling considering how over the top everything is. Everything mm-hmm. kind of followed from the previous sequence. Um, I thought that was amazing. And the fact that you could follow the action at all times for things to be that hectic and, and for George to keep the, 
directing simple enough to follow the fight sequences. Um, I, I, I don't know that, uh, that he'll be able to top this or that anyone will mm-hmm. top this for a long time. It was just someone so confident in their ability that they didn't have to show off. Uh, mm-hmm. Instead, they just kind of um, you know, set a new bar that I don't think could be surpassed for a while. Well, and Hugh, on the on the subject of clarity, I mean, you're you're right that the action scenes were so clear. But one thing that really struck me about this movie is that it doesn't. There's no info dumps. There's no like idiot proofing of the exposition whatsoever. The it mm-hmm. just you know you you're in this world and it's up to you to keep up. Um, I'd actually be really curious to watch it again and just see. I mean, there were a couple of things that took me about halfway into the movie about the world before it clicked, and I'm just mm-hmm. curious. Would it be you know was I just a little slow or you know <laughs> did did you need to get that far into the story before all the bits and pieces kind of coalesced in your mind? So so here's something I thought was interesting about like the world building and everything. Uh, so I went to go see this with my wife uh, and my 12 year old stepdaughter. Uh, we you know we we knew that maybe it was going to be a little violent for her, but she seemed like she thought it would be cool, and and so um, so we all went and. My wife, Christy, and I, we both loved it. And I actually wasn't even sure that Christy was going to like it because she often gets bored during action sequences. Like, you know, like you'll go to one of these movies like Avengers or something and and people will come out of it talking to like, oh, that was amazing action sequence, whatever. And she's like, ah, that was that was my least favorite part of the movie. You know what I mean? Um, but this she was like enthralled with the entire movie from start to finish, even, you know, and maybe even especially because of the action sequences. But um so, but I thought it was really interesting. My 12-year-old stepdaughter was completely bored by the whole movie. Like, it, she didn't get it at all. Like, um, and I think it was actually a really bold choice uh, for George Miller to actually just make this movie uh, just explicitly an R-rated, um, you know, action movie intended for adults. You know, not pandering to the PG-13 audience at all, which a lot of action movies do. And I think, you know, much for the worse. Um, and so I was just, it was just really, really great to see that. I mean, it's like, uh, there's lots of action movies that are maybe on par with the sort of level of action and violence or maybe, well, no, no, nothing's, nothing's on par with the action, action level of this movie, but there's a lot of movies that like have a lot, uh, almost as much violence. And yet they're sort of targeted at this younger demographic because they want to get that magical PG 13 rating, which, you know, opens you up to the most profits. But, um, I really appreciated them. Um, saying screw that and just going you know going for broke as far as the the world building i i think and and i think this is in the movie's favor that it is depending on a language a filmmaking language that has been around for about 35 years now since the very first mad max movie of the post-apocalyptic post-apocalyptic why is that word so hard to say this is going to be tough um that landscape um you know that part that's part of why i love the movie is is i'm a big fan of the genre I call it the 1980s post-apocalyptic road trip movie. Um, mm-hmm. And it's an entire genre. And there's hundreds of movies that fit in that genre. And there's things that you you always see over and over and over again, like the motorcycle gangs and the desert landscape. Mm-hmm. And just the gonzo weirdness. And that kind of thing doesn't need an explanation. Um, because that's part of the genre. It's part of the tropes. You just need to sit back and take it in. Um I've been kind of joking with people, but it's not really joking that I have seen people, um, you know, I've seen a lot of blog comments and, and Facebook posts and things that, well, this movie had no story. This movie had no story. And my response is, well, just because nobody stopped to explain it to you <laughs> doesn't mean there's not a story there. And once again, I'll say that if anybody wants to top this as an action movie, they need to start with a really good story and then mm-hmm. hang the action on it rather than trying to come up with the ultimate stunt and then just right. shoehorning it into something that makes no sense, you know? See, Hugh, I mean, do you want to say anything else about the, the world building in this movie or how it's what, what sets it apart from other post-apocalyptic kind of movies? Well, I, I think it's something that has in common is uh, what you talked about, not doing info dumps and letting people mm-hmm. um, understand the, the world slowly. Um, that's I love that about speculative fiction and science fiction. Um, it's kind of the opposite with fantasy where the history of the world is so important that you have prologues and you just like dump, this is the king so-and-so of land so-and-so of uh, the son of so-and-so, and you just really revel in that. But with um, a lot of speculative fiction, part of the mystery is is the world. And like, uh, you know, Carrie's Bannerless is like that in our uh, triptych. I think it's one of the best stories we uh, we have in the in across the three novels, to be honest. 
Um, Thank you. And uh, oh man, I, <laughs> we read that before the second one came out, and it was like hard to wait a whole novel to uh, to get that out there. But you learn the rules of this world slowly, and that's part of the the mystery. And I, I think you know. So the film doesn't do anything different. It just does it as well as you can possibly do it. I think they he pulled it off um, superbly. Well, it's funny you mentioned fantasy, Hugh, because after the movie, uh, all my friends were fixated on the scene where they drive across the muddy uh, plain, and there are these weird people on stilts <laughs> walking around. I and love it, it looked... that so much. <laughs> yeah, and it, and I it just looked... gosh, <laughs> I love that. It was like it was like Salvador Dali had a moment in the middle of the film mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, and so it was like something out of Dark Crystal or something. Yeah. Oh yeah, saying. absolutely. Yeah, my wife whispered to me. She's like Skeksis. <laughs> Uh, Carrie, do you want to do you want to gush about that? I would love mm-hmm. to. Yeah, it's the, the Landstriders in, in Dark Crystal use the same kind of stilt technology, and I they don't need an explanation. It, you know, it is part of the world. It's it's a detail. Um, it 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 was beautiful. I mean, there's a really strange way in which you know you've got the crows, the colors in those scenes. You know, I agree with Charlie Jane Andrews that the, there are parts of this movie that are just an absolute work of art. Um, you know, the color scheme of the swamp. And the thing is, as, as, as random and as gonzo and as weird as that scene was, and I do, I kind of want to know more about, you know, mm-hmm. the swamp stilt people, but I kind of don't. I, I kind of don't mm-hmm. want to know what they're doing there, or what's really going on. Because the, the moment in the plot that that's building up, of course, is that, oh, this used to be the green place and, and now it's not mm-hmm. anymore because something terrible happened. Um you know, because that's immediately what your mind goes to when, when they get beyond and they meet the Vuvulini and they say, oh, but if, if you're coming from the West, you've already been through the green place. And your mind immediately goes back to that horrible, crow-ridden, wretched swamp. Um, and, and, you know, your heart drops along with the characters at that point because you're like, oh, that place wasn't green at all. It was, you know, blue and, and muddy and yucky and horrible. And, and that's the place where you get stuck and you don't want to be there anymore. Um so, I, you know, there, there are different kinds of world building. And I think that, you know, there's the kind of world building where you sit and you try to explain it all to the audience. But then there's just the kind where you you just sort of hang these pictures on the wall and trust that by the time you get them all hung up, it will make this beautiful collage that will mean mean hmm. something greater than the, the some of the parts. OK, so just out of curiosity, at the beginning, when Max first gets strapped to the front of the car with, a mm-hmm. um, you know, a blood thing in him, do we do we understand? Did you guys understand exactly what was going on at that point? Or is that something that only becomes clear uh, as the story progresses? I think there was a quick line of dialogue that explained it. And if you missed that, it was tricky. But, you know, he said that basically he's not just getting his blood. He's getting um, part of his personality through that blood. Like that this guy was like complete madness. And so getting Mad Max's blood was, um, you know, giving him that like, crazy juice basically to to go a little over the top and and push himself the way Mad Max has done as a survivor so some of his um personality was kind of leeching through there and uh and and to me that made his presence on, on the vehicle uh believable i mean these are um nitrous oxide fueled um vehicles throughout the the series of movies you know they have a certain level of speed then you hit the juice to open the bottle and you have that second boost. And uh, in, in this case, Bad Max was the bottle. Hmm. And, and the war boys are ill. You know, they, they are actually sick. They are, they are dying of, of radiation or illness or, or you know, what, whatever. The, the post-apocalyptic trope, that is what they are dying of. Um, so there's, there was also, the way I read it is they actually need blood transfusions to survive. Um, you know, there's the scene very early on where they're actually tattooing Max's medical information. Mm-hmm. Um, on his back, so that they could just look at a glance and see who who matches his blood type, so that he can, um, you know, give transfusion, so that the war boys will be physically strong enough to be able to go out to battle. That's interesting. I didn't get. I I got the thing Carrie said, but a little bit later in the story, I didn't get the thing Hugh said at all. I must have missed that line. But that's actually really interesting. Um, how about the thing in their religion where they like right before they expect to die, they kind of spray spray paint their mouths with chrome? Yeah. Uh, what do you guys make of that? Car culture. I loved it. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. it's they're, they're in a, a car culture and auto, not just a car culture, but a classic cult, car culture. I thought that was a, a great detail that you know the apocalypse happened at X year and there's not a car after that. You know there there are no new cars in that movie. <laughs> they're all old and vintage. 
um, which makes you cry a little bit when you see them get destroyed. But uh, but that's part of the grief process, I guess. Um, yeah, I, I saw that as uh, their their culture and religion is built around cars. Um, so they are making themselves more like the cars by spraying the chrome. What's cool too is like guys who get that um, the bling in their mouth. You know, they they mm-hmm. they start to call in your smile, your grill. Yeah, so yeah. it uh, kind of played on that too. Yeah, with the with the spray paint thing, um, I I didn't quite catch on. That's what they were doing at first, and I, I, at first I was I was trying to figure out was it actually just spray paint or was it supposed to be some kind of drug or something in that like you know they to 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 sort of give them a little little boost or something right before they died because it seemed like they kept you know because they were always doing it right before they thought they were about to die, and so I thought it was like oh okay well this is this is a little something to to sort of push them over the top, um, which it kind of seems to do, even though it ter- turns out it's just spray paint. It's just that it's like, you know, they, they sort of get adrenaline going because they're like, you know, they're, they're trying to go out with a bang so that they can, uh, you know, enter Valhalla in style or whatever. Hey, go, go spray some spray paint in your ma- mouth. I bet you will get a little <laughs> bit of a buzz. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take your word for it. See, Carrie, you said you had a lot of things to gush about. Do you have just maybe one or two more while we have time <laughs> that you want to gush oh, about? Gosh, one or two more. Um, well, Furiosa, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and I read, there's a great blog post going around, if you do a little bit of poking, by a woman who um, was born without her left mm-hmm. arm. Um, and she went to see this movie, and, and she's talking about how amazing it was to see a woman in an action movie, you know, with one arm, and it's not a big deal. You know, once again, we don't know, you know, was Furiosa born without an arm? Did she lose the arm? We don't know. And you know what? It doesn't matter um, because it doesn't actually the the reason why she has one arm doesn't affect the character in the slightest. Um, This is who she is. This is just part of her. And. um, And that's also revolutionary. You know, it's it's yet another really revolutionary thing about this movie that that so many things are are just there without kind of needing to point a big neon arrow (laughs) at it going, look, look at this cool thing that we did. It's just part of the story. Um, so that was great. The um, the mothers, the, the milking the mothers was an image that came early on that was just strange and bizarre and weird. And the movie doesn't spend a lot of time on mm-hmm. it. Um, and That's some Pierce it, Anthony shit. Well, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, on the one hand, you're looking at it going, this is really messed up. But then a little voice in the back of your mind goes well you know actually in this kind of world this makes a little bit of sense Mm -hmm. and it's wrong and it's part of the world and it's it's kind of genius at the same time all right so i hate to even mention it but does anyone have any criticism of this (laughs) um I, i think my only criticism is that it wasn't actually called mad max what a lovely day like i i i just i think that would be hilarious um, and, and actually like, I, I would have loved to see it called that and then have the trailer recut. So it's like from George Miller, director of babe pig in the city <laughs> two comes mad Max. <laughs> what a lovely day. Like that would be amazing. I mean, cause he actually did direct those movies. Like how crazy is that? And <laughs> I love babe. I, you know, when, when you point it out, you can actually see babe is a very disturbing movie at some level. <laughs> I can totally see that it's directed by the same person. Well, he directed Babe 2. Babe oh, he didn't Babe direct the first one? No, somebody else did. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's like, what a, what a weird filmography. Great. He, also, he also did the two uh, Happy Feet movies. I, yeah. You know, the thing I, the thing I would have, um, you know, the movie is almost perfect to me. I think one thing that would have made it just a little bit stronger was to have a couple more character development scenes for the main bad guy where mm-hmm. – um, and it wouldn't take much at all to make him a little more nefarious. Like when he's developed, uh, delivering the water. Um, if it was someone else delivering the water and he reached over and pulled their hand back so that the idea was you could give them a lot more water, but I'm choosing not to. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and one other scene with, you know, him being abusive to an underling or, um, you know, he was fearsome in guys, but he didn't really have, the same level of like complete scared of this dude, the way you did some of the bad guys in the, uh, in the other three films. Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't know. There's that scene where he's, uh, you know, Angarad has just, um, fallen off the truck and, and gone under the wheels and he's there holding her body. Like she's some kind of sack of grain. Um, he's, he's pretty 
horrifying. I, thought, I, I don't that's know that he needs like, that Even with that scene, I felt, um, I, I felt pity for him in that scene. Like, I, I don't know. It, the next scene where he's more concerned about the baby than her was more of that kind of evil development that I like. And I, I, I like complex characters. I don't want evil for the sake of being evil. But the other movies had me really terrified for the main characters that they would be caught um, by the bad guy. And this one, I, I was concerned for the main characters that they might fall under the wheel of a, of a vehicle or get blown up in an explosion. But I didn't really fear for what would happen if the bad guy caught them like I was in the other movies where you thought, you know, um, they're going to be tortured and dismembered and, you know, thrown into the Thunderdome, that kind of thing. Well, all um, the torture's already happened. <laughs> yeah. That's what they're getting yeah. away from. I think maybe just a little more depravity, but every other than that, <laughs> the movie was perfect. Well, and they, I mean, they clearly needed more Tina Turner songs. <laughs> you never have too many Tina Turner songs. That's what I'm saying. I mean, my my one, I wouldn't even change it. I thought I thought I liked the movie the way it is, but I mean, yeah. the, the one thing that occurred to me watching it was I thought that um, Nux, the the Jim Holt or whatever his name character is, Nicholas Holt, yeah, Nicholas Holt. That he went uh, that for someone who was so brainwashed at the beginning that mm. it was he made a really really quick abandonment of his uh, religion uh, and everything and I, I had a little bit of a trouble accepting that but no he fell in love though you look guys will change their religion very quickly <laughs> um, when they fall in love and I, I really think it was seeing um, his relationship with uh, with one of the freed wives that uh, turned him around and and. Um, being denied entry into heaven like three times and then her compassion for him. I thought that scene with them at, at the back of the truck was just unbelievable. I mean, so much was conveyed mm. in just a short period of time. So I, I bought it. I could see how it is a big turnaround, but that was the surprise for me, how I, I hated this guy. And by the end of the movie, I, I, I loved him. Like a guy that you, you wanted to die because it was going to help Mad Max if he died. You went from wanting him to die to mourning his death in, in two hours. That was pretty cool. Mm. See, so, Carrie, do you have uh, any criticism or anything you want to add? You know, I'm sitting here trying to think of what I would <laughs> change, and I wouldn't. I, I can't actually think of anything. I want I want a spinoff movie about the Vuvulini. That's what I want. Mm-hmm. That's what I would change. I would have a second movie all about them. I heard I heard that uh, you know the second uh, you know another movie has already been greenlit and that it was supposed to focus uh, a lot more on uh, Furiosa. So I mean I, I think mm. that's definitely cool too. Uh, I mean because uh, I could I, I would definitely watch a whole movie just about her without Mad Max altogether. Um, and, and did you guys actually did you hear about this? Did you hear this fan theory that um, that Mad Max in 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 Fury Road was actually not the original Mad Max, but uh, was actually uh, one of those little kids that that he meets in like one of the other movies. Like I don't know them well enough to tell you which kid, but uh, it was the the feral child. Is the yeah theory. yeah yeah the feral yeah. child yeah 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 yeah. So it's like uh, I, I thought that was a really interesting theory. It's like and and I mean even the article that that was talking about it was saying oh well you know you kind of it kind of breaks some you know some of the some of the the mythology or whatever to in order to believe that, but it's kind of a fun idea. Uh, so. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't. I don't think it works really at all. But I mean, yeah. it, it does. I mean, there is something wonky with the chronology, like because mm-hmm. Mad Max is thirty-seven and he had a whole life as a police officer before this. And how long has this world been in a post-apocalyptic condition? You kind of have to just sort of hand wave that a little bit. Yeah, I, yeah, I look yeah. at it. He's it's like James Bond. You know? <laughs> sure. Yeah, there there have been what you know, fifty years, forty years of James Bond movies, and he right. stays pretty much the same through all of them. Hmm. I look at it the same. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, I, I did want to say about the other movies, though, um, is that, yeah, apparently, you know, because George Miller has been trying to make this movie Fury Road for 10 years, and it was originally there was supposed to be Mel Gibson, but then that didn't work out ultimately. And so he's had a lot of time to think about other Mad Max stories. <laughs> and I think he said he has one script written and another one has you know, like a, a like a um, treatment for it. And yeah, and I think the, the first the first of those was originally titled Mad Max Furiosa. Mm. And I think he changed it to Mad Max: The Wasteland, if I'm if I have the facts right. But it, it does suggest that yeah, that she'll probably be in it, right, as a major nice. character. And um, Nerdist was reporting that these are prequel movies, so I don't know how that because he hasn't met her in this one before, right? So I don't know how that would work exactly. But um, I do expect to see more Furiosa in the future. 
you know, I also saw that um, apparently Tom Hardy, you know, who plays Mad Max, uh, he was pretty skeptical about the whole movie, like while they were filming it. And because the I mean, the the filming was very difficult because they did all these like big, huge practical stunts and everything. Um, and apparently he he apologized sincerely to George Miller after he saw the final cut because he was like, man, I had no idea that's what you were doing. <laughs> you know, it's like I, I can totally imagine that. Like, how could you how could you conceive? what he was going to actually accomplish when you're out there making this thing and you don't get to see it all put together. And God, it's can't even imagine <laughs> being on, on location with them, like trying to shoot these scenes with these gigantic trucks and everything that they built. Like they actually built all these trucks, like these, that, that truck full of speakers and like everything worked. Apparently George Miller was intent on making sure everything worked. So like that guitar that shot flame out of it, that actually did that. <laughs> It was the actual working guitar that shot flame out of it. <laughs> so I saw this great. with a friend who said he was really glad this didn't come out when he was 15. Because he would be trying to build that guitar right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I saw this in, I'm, I'm here in Africa, and I saw this with someone who said, um, I, we have dunes uh, that look a lot like that, like, mm-hmm. uh, like north of here in, in another country up in Africa. And I thought, yeah, well, I, I just assumed it was shot like outside of L.A., you know. Mm-hmm. But it turns out it was shot here in Africa. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Namibia. Yeah, so imagine, you know, just the the logistics of this. And supposedly, like, uh, tempers were kind of running hot on the set because there were all kinds of delays and stuff. But I heard Tom Hardy was um, either staying in character too much or something, but he was kind of um, a little miffed uh, with being... um, I don't know, upstaged in the film mm. during the shooting, but I don't know if that was just him staying in character or not. But mm-hmm. whatever whatever drama happened in the background, it all worked to the service of the film because I, there was not a, a bad performance in the movie. That was another thing that stood out. Not, none of the ancillary characters um, kind of stood out for, for acting. Everybody was mm-hmm. completely believable, which is weird for a plot that's so unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Yo, I mean, I, I was an extra once for one day, and I was totally exhausted at the end of that. <laughs> so I could just imagine what it's like shooting. I think there was they, they said one of the car chase sequences took 138 days straight to oh. shoot. Oh like, my god! Like in the in the Namibian desert, I can just imagine you would get a little, uh, you know, and your tempers would would be running uh, high. Um, but actually, another funny thing about though is that apparently they scouted this whole location and they were all set up to film, and then it had rained too much and it looked all pretty, and there were wildflowers mm-hmm. blooming everywhere, and, and they're like, oh, yeah. "Ah, damn it!" And they had to find a whole another place to shoot. <laughs> all right, cool. Yeah, so we could talk about like like Carrie was saying, we could talk about that movie all day, but uh, yeah, we do have some other stuff we want to talk about. And I mean, like Carrie was kind of saying, you know, that there's this whole genre of post-apocalyptic films and radioactive wastelands and you know, fall nuclear fallout and all this stuff. And it's kind of seemed like this is, you know, it, it seems like a bit of a throwback because we haven't seen a ton of that in recent years in in big movies like this. And so, John, as our sort of our post-apocalyptic expert here, do you want to just comment on that? Is this, uh, do you think it's going to be a renaissance in, for this kind of movie or just what is the place, what, what role is Mad Max going to play in the, the bigger picture of nuclear fallout movies? Yeah, well, I mean, I hope it becomes a bit of a renaissance. I mean, if only though, if people take the right lessons off of uh, from this movie instead of just uh, thinking that like, oh, all we have to do is throw a hundred percent action into a movie, like them like misinterpreting that there was actually all the story being delivered in, in Mad Max. Um, like, you know, I'm not interested in seeing a bunch of uh, sort of Mad Max movie clones that that get the sort of some of the surface, but none of the heart. You know, I mean, I'm not interested in that. Um, but I mean, I would love to see more post-apocalyptic movies uh, and especially like, you know, big, uh, you know, revolutionary action movies like this, too. Um, you know, and the thing is, is like, you know, as, as you know, as a huge post-apocalyptic fan, um, oftentimes people will ask me, but like, like, well, what are my favorite apocalyptic movies and it's like honestly i have to struggle to to find uh things to say as a favorite like there there's there's lots of movies that i like parts of or um i like uh, i like the way the apocalypse is depicted but i don't know that i necessarily like them overall and and i don't necessarily think that they're like good movies overall um and like so i mean i think most of the time i would by default just say 12 monkeys even though that's kind of i mean that's kind of a cheat because it's most of a mostly a time travel movie uh but now i'm glad that i can actually say that no well my my favorite post apocalyptic movie is is mad max fury road um and not feel bad about it whatsoever like uh, not you know not with any qualifications or or anything it's just like obviously that's my favorite post apocalyptic movie hmm. 
I mean, Hugh, do you want to pick up on that? I mean, you wrote this this series, Wool, with that's a post-apocalyptic thing. Kind of, what do you think is sort of the current state of post-apocalyptic film and fiction? I, I, th- I think it's awesome. I, th- I think we make this mistake of thinking that post-apocalyptic stories are new. It seems like every every ten years we uh, we act like these disaster films or these apocalyptic films are are all this new thing. And it's um, you know, you look at the, the Old Testament was full of um, stories like this and every, um, religious tradition has their own, uh, version of the, um, the destruction and what comes after. And, and, um, it's, you know, they're all survival films and they go through different, um, iterations, but the, the whole like, uh, lost on a deserted Island was a type of post-apocalyptic survival film. Uh, the Westerns were a type of post-apocalyptic survival film. It's all about, being in the wilderness with very, very mm-hmm. little and how are you, how you make it through. So the, the guise of them has changed, but, uh, it's the story, the, the idea of, um, um, you know, going against nature and having to survive by your wits and, and how long will you last is thousands of years old. So is it getting better? Absolutely. Because our, our storytelling abilities are getting better. Um, it's, it's because we're learning from the past and we're iterating has nothing to do with, um, in my opinion, it has nothing to do with any genre having a heyday. It's just we're, we're telling the same stories over and over again. We're just getting a lot better at it. Well, I mean, I, I think, I mean, there, I don't think there's been any dearth of post-apocalyptic stories in terms of like zombie movies and things like that. But it does seem like there haven't been that many uh, stories about nuclear war and the aftermath mm-hmm. of nuclear war. And I just wonder, I, I kind of wonder if if all these like Mad, Mad Max Road Warrior movies made people more um, aware of how bad a nuclear war would actually be, and if as people like John stepdaughter grow up, you know, not not watching all these uh, after the bomb type things, if they're becoming a little bit more complacent about mm. the prospect of nuclear war. Yeah, the, these these stories have never gone away. the The method of apocalypse has changed. Mm-hmm. Um, like, like even you know, the the nuclear apocalypse story came to a head in the '80s for really obvious reasons. You know, the the bombs got so much better, and and Reagan, um, you know, escalating things. Um, but you know, even going back to the '60s, you have movies like Failsafe, um, on the shore, on, on, the, on the shore, on the beach. On, on okay, the beach. yeah, the mm-hmm. the Neville Shoot book. Um, so that that fear had a couple of generations to cook um, by the time we get to like Mad Max and the day after and threads and those kinds of movies. Um, what's interesting to me is that the the vehicle of apocalypse has changed. Like, I, I don't know that we need to instill a fear of nuclear war um, because what we have instead, of course, are the fear of pandemic, um, you know, the, the, the Ebola's of the world, um, climate change, uh, climate collapse, economic collapse, um, the zombie apocalypse, I think, is a, a metaphor for all of these other things maybe put together, um, you know, the disease and the climate and the, um, the economy all, all together. And, and so the tropes don't necessarily change. It's, it's the vehicle of apocalypse that is very kind of easily adaptable from one apocalypse to the next. Even if uh, you know kids aren't reading this, or aren't reading the post-apocalyptic fiction, and, and and maybe and since the movies haven't been around, they they uh, or the nu- you know the nuclear apocalypse movies haven't been around. Um, maybe like you say, Dave, they they could be potentially getting complacent. But um, I think that the uh, the Fallout series of video games will certainly uh, potentially fill in some of that void that that the lack of movies had sort of created um, because the fallout series is, is a nuclear apocalypse. And uh, um, I think that does a pretty good job of showing how terrible it would be. And maybe even better than a movie could just because you have to actually live in it as a character, you know, as you make your way through the game Um, and and borderlands too. I I don't know what kind of apocalypse uh, happens in borderlands. It's uh, I think it's mostly relevant, but yeah, I mean, I think, uh, and and, I mean, that was actually one thing that I was really hoping after seeing Mad Max is like, Oh my God, maybe this will mean we finally get a fallout movie. So we, I mean, I, I would actually rather see that as a television series because I think there's so many stories to tell um, or, you know, a, a wool series. That would be also amazing. Well, actually, John, John, just the, to the follow up games, is it just kind of like the Road Warrior as a video game or does it bring something new or different to the post-apocalyptic setting? Oh, oh, yeah, no, no. It brings a lot, uh, a lot of different stuff to it. Uh, uh, it 
there's definitely parts of it that were influenced by the Road Warrior, um, and there's there's even characters that are basically just the Road Warrior, like exactly. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it, it brings a lot to it. I mean, it's like you know, people survived uh, in these vaults, and so like a lot of technology and stuff has been preserved, and and knowledge has been preserved, and so there's like this very complicated uh, backstory mythology to the whole setting, um, and uh, and yeah, so I mean, I think it's it's definitely a lot more than that. It's and and also a, a civilization has built been sort of either built back up or preserved uh much more so than in Mad Max. Like Mad Max there's almost nothing, right? In 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 Fallout there's actually some cities where it's like, okay, well this is mostly a city as we would recognize it today. Um obviously uh, a little worse for the wear and and uh and different uh because of all the, you know, different changes that have happened in the world, but uh but there's definitely cities and there's uh much more civilization there. So um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely a whole different thing. Hmm. Okay. So we're running a little short on time, so we should get into the apocalypse triptych. Uh, so Hugh, you want to talk about this? Tell us a bit about the apocalypse triptych. Well, I can tell you it's, uh, all John's brilliant idea. I was just uh, <laughs> along for the ride. Um, but yeah, he, he came up with the idea, um, you know, that, that apocalypse stories kind of take place in one of three settings, either, um, during the apocalypse, which are like the disaster films that we've all seen or, the uh, the pre-apocalyptic, like the end is nigh, um, seeing seeing the approaching uh, doom, and of course, what's uh, been really popular lately, the post-apocalyptic. And his idea was to tell a series of um, stories across three anthologies that would cover each of those, and to have these stories linked together. Um, so uh, he had formulated all this on his own, and just uh, we were at um, uh, Worldcon in Chicago a few years ago, and. And went and had lunch just as um, mutual fans of each other's works. I had read Wastelands, and he had read Wool, and and so we went and had lunch and hung out. Uh, he and his wife, and um, he he floated this idea and wanted to know if I wanted to be a part of it and help edit it. And I'd never, you know, I've only edited my own work before, so uh, I didn't know what I was agreeing to. But man, mm-hmm. I it's it's been like a um, guy year and a half to year journey, and um, loved every minute of it and learned so much and been introduced to so many amazing writers that I wouldn't have discovered otherwise. So um, I'm just really honored that he uh, invited me along for the ride. Well, talk, talk to you about some of the stories. I mean, what, did you see any trends or do the stories that people are writing these days say anything you think about what people are afraid of right now? Yeah, you know, it, it was really interesting. What I, I've i seen this with some other anthologies. Like we studied in an, an anthology at, in a science fiction class in, at um, the College of Charleston where all the stories had uh, heavy feminist themes. And um, some of the people in the class asked if this was curated that way, and, and it wasn't. It's just you have people writing about very similar themes in popular culture at the same time. And when our first when um, anthology came out, we were really uh, surprised, pleasantly surprised, about how many uh, of these stories had gay protagonists or gay relationships in the um uh, as a feature of the plot. And that's just a, a, a social issue of, of the time that these people are writing. Like we um, aren't writing about race relations as much because we feel like we've made progress on that. And so the things that are, the issues that are in our courts are percolating through these authors' minds. And, and when you read all these stories together, they, they're not reading each other's manuscripts. They have no idea what anyone else is writing. And for them to have that, that similar theme across the, the, uh, the canon was really, really cool for me. It gave me a, like, you know, an appreciation for how artists are wrestling with the same themes, uh, derived from, from culture all at the same time. Huh. And so Carrie, I mean, we mentioned that you wrote one of these stories. You want to tell us about your story, Bannerless? Yeah. Um, it's actually the third story I've written in this world. Um, and it's the immediate prequel, uh, to, uh, the a story that appeared in, in Lightspeed that's edited by, by John Joseph Adams. Um, here, uh, Amaryllis, uh, which was my my Hugo nominated story. It was nominated for Hugo a few years ago, and um, and there's a question raised in that story um, that that the protagonist herself raises about why why did her mother do this? It, it's a world where um, resources are managed to such an extent that um, unauthorized pregnancies are illegal, and her mother she was an unauthorized pregnancy, and and the question she's asking through the whole story is why did her mother do this? So Bannerless is the answer to that question, and it's about her mother and and why she did it. 
Um, it's actually about the investigator sent to investigate what happened and why, you know, why this pregnancy happened and what's actually going on. Because, of course, there's there's more to it um, than just this person is illegally pregnant. There, there's a whole uh, subtext to that. And my initial reason that, that, you know, I guess you'd call it my mission statement for, for kind of all of these stories that I've been writing in this world. Um, I wanted to write um, a more optimistic post-apocalyptic setting. Um, yes, you know, you know, great apocalypse has happened. Things are, are completely different. But I also wanted to write about characters and worlds where, where things are actually getting better. Um, you know, people actually are living in communities successfully. Uh, not everything was lost. Not everything was destroyed. Um, and, and that they learned lessons, you know, about resource management and making sure that everybody has enough and taking care of each other, um, which you know, may, may sound a little optimistic and may sound a little idealistic even. But um, th that's kind of my point is, is I wanted to say, well, what would happen if things actually um, worked out better than a Mad Max movie. <laughs> uh, okay, so John, final word. Anything else you want to add about the uh, Apocalypse Triptych? Uh, I, I mean, no, I just, like, like he was saying, I mean, it, it was just a, a, a great ride uh, doing all three books and, and having him as a partner on it. It, it was really uh, an interesting experience cause, because we also, we, uh, we, we not only edited these together, we also published them ourselves, you know, sort of, um, you know, sort of via CreateSpace and, and, and Amazon and uh, Kindle and everything. And so um, that's been really interesting to do all that and have to, you know, be involved at every level of the publishing process. Um, but, uh, and, and, you know, just anyone listening, I mean, um, if you're into these kinds of books, um, I mean, we'd love it if you check them out, obviously, but, um, it's also, uh, if you have read them and, and enjoyed them, uh, you know, please leave a review if you can, because, uh, you know, because we publish these ourselves, it's a, it's an indie project and, and every bit of, uh, word of mouth helps. So, um, you know, if you love them, uh, you know, please, uh, let somebody else know. And do you want to say anything, John, about Wastelands too? Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, I also, yeah. So, uh, the end has come just came out in May and, uh, but then just earlier this year, I had Wastelands two come out in uh, February. Um, that's a sequel to my first anthology Wastelands. Um, and, uh, so Wastelands came out in 2008 and then, um, you know, so then Wastelands 2 just came out this year. And so, you know, that's been several years uh, since then that, uh, you know, in order for, for more post-apocalyptic stories to sort of accumulate, um, and, um, so basically Wastelands 2 is, uh, for the most part, uh, picking up where Wastelands 1 left off in terms of chronology, like, so sort of, um, stories, uh, that were published since Wastelands 1 came out, more or less. Uh, there's a few stories that came out before, and especially for authors who were already in Wastelands 1, which I, you know, so I, in, because I already reprinted them once, I reprinted a different story in the second one. Um, but it was really interesting to, to revisit that, um, you know, post-apocalyptic fiction and, and in the reprint setting, you know, trying to curate uh, the best of what was out there after I had already done it once. Um, and, uh, you know, so both books are completely reprints. And, uh, it's like scavenging for supplies. <laughs> it is. Yeah, yeah, it actually is kind of. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I mean, it, uh, it was a really interesting experience. And, um, you know, it was actually originally going to come out from Nightshade Books, but then Nightshade sort of uh, had some difficulties. And so I ended up selling it to Titan. and. Uh, uh, so that was cool, too, because it, it, it got to sort of introduce uh, Wastelands to a different audience because Titan has different distribution and, and you know, is a larger company. And, and um, so that was cool. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's got it's got stories by George R. R. Martin, Juno Diaz, uh, Hugh Howie, Shauna McGuire, David Brin, uh, Paolo Bacigalupi. And, uh, you know, it's about, uh, let's see, I think there's like 30 something stories in there all together. So, um yeah, I mean, if you're an Apocalypse fan, and if you listen to this far into the podcast, you probably are, then uh, you might want to check out that one, too. All right, cool. So I think we're going to have to wrap things up there. So uh, I think everyone should go see Mad Max Fury Road. We, we all highly recommend it. And if you enjoy it, you should also go check out Wastelands 2 and the Apocalypse Triptych. And uh, yes, yeah, so I think we're going to wrap things up there. So guys, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Thanks for having me, David. Yeah, it was good to be here. And that was our panel. So a big thanks again to John Joseph Adams, Hugh Howie, and Carrie Vaughn for joining us on the show. And you can read Carrie's short story, Bannerless, which we talked about in this episode, over on Wired.com. And we'll have a link to that on our website. So just visit us at geeksguideshow.com and check out the post for episode 152. 
I'd also like to thank everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including David APR, Love Me Some Sci-Fi, and All Is Temp. All Is Temp writes, I am late to the party, having only begun listening in the last month, and I love this podcast. The topics are entertaining, and David does a great job of being prepared with pertinent knowledge and information about the guests, and is flexible enough to move where the guest and the conversation leads. I am working my way through the archives as I wait for the next episode. So a big thanks to all his temp for that great review. And of course, a very special thank you to Jim McVeigh and Chris Capobianco, who both signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd prefer to make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.